Let me pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, Incarnation. I want to tell you this morning a little story about a friend of mine who used to be a middle school teacher. And I remember him uh, one time telling me about a, a child who was perpetually acting out in his class. And um, after, after trying many things with the kid, um, one day he pulled him aside and said, look, I really care about you and I want to be for you, but I'm responsible for the other kids in this class too. And if you keep doing what you're doing, I'll be against you. In other words, he said the demands of love require justice and vice versa. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But God's deepest desire and my friend's deepest desire is to be merciful. And so James adds, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's God's deepest desire. This morning, we're looking at Jonah 3. And um, we could definitely spend a good amount of time talking about some Old Testament evangelism. Um, but I'm going to save that for John next week. And today, I want to highlight the theme of repentance. Repentance is different than confession, right? Confession means admitting what we did is wrong, right? That's confession. But repentance means purposing in our hearts not to do it again, right? It's, it's, it's coming to that place where we say we, we no longer want to go the way of death. We want to go the way of life. Isn't that what happens to Jonah? There's this moment of repentance. He's in the belly of the whale. It's not, not very heroic of him. And he repents. But here's the thing. It's possible, even when repentance is sincere, to turn back to sin, isn't it? Because we see Jonah do that later on in Jonah chapter 4. Because, you know, at first we just think, hey, the Lord just wants him to obey with his actions. But as the onion sort of unpeels and we kind of get into deeper layers, we see, oh, the problem is, is that he doesn't have God's heart. So when we sin, the next move is not just simply, I mean, it, it, it might, it might um, involve this, but it's not simply to feel sorry and to confess. It should be a desire to start all over again with repentance, to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court, and to take tangible steps to see that what we did doesn't happen again, right? That's what Jesus means by cut your hand off or gouge your eye out, right? One man wrote, it's much easier to repent of sins that we have committed than to repent of those we intend to commit. <laughs> now, repentance is different than confession. It's also different than faith. John Calvin asks, can true repentance exist without faith? By no means. But although they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished. So repentance and faith are not the same thing. They can't be separated, but they're not the same thing. To be sure, they're often paired together in the New Testament, and they may be kind of like two sides of the same coin. But if faith is receiving with the empty hands, we have these empty hands of faith to receive the promises of the gospel. Repentance 
is casting away from our hands whatever was in there that's keeping us from receiving the gospel. Does that make sense? The demons believe in God, but they don't repent, they shudder. The true convert believes and repents. In other words, they began a lifelong process of reorienting themselves to a new king. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's a lifelong thing that never gets finished in this life. As we said a few weeks back, we keep turning and turning and turning until we turn around right. So in this sense, repentance depends upon faith, and faith is completed by repentance. Last week, we saw how Jonah's uh, deliverance from three days and three nights in the belly of Sheol pointed forward toward Christ. And I mentioned this concept, uh, this, this word that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien invented, eucatastrophe. It's a sudden and massive turn for the better that foreshadowed the greatest eucatastrophe of all time, the resurrection of the Son of God. And today we're going to see what Jonah 3 has to teach us about the topic, topic of repentance. And uh, we find four things. First, that repentance means a second chance. Second, that repentance means trying to make things right. Third, repentance involves turning. And finally, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. So first, repentance means a second chance. We've all gotten the stories of our lives messed up, and God has given us a chance to start over again. He makes his mercy new every morning. Do any of you remember... Um, in the early 90s, if you watched Saturday Night Live in the early 90s, um, there was this little segment called Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Did you, did you, have you ever see this? So Jack Handy would, um, there would be these absurd one-liners that were um, usually hilarious, sometimes mildly disturbing, often both. So you, you, you see how I'm devolving. Last week you got J.R. Tolkien, and today you're getting Jack Handy. <laughs> And next time, I'm going to be quoting from Dude, Where's My Car? Um, well, Jack Handy had a less famous segment called um, My Big Thick Novel. And I remember the intro graphics. It was this absurdly enormous book. I mean, it was like this thick, right? And the pages would kind of flutter open. And, uh, and then it would turn, and it would be like, chapter 827. You know? And then he would tell some incredibly weird short story. Well, I remember one episode, stick with me here, I'm going somewhere. <laughs> so I remember one episode in my big thick novel and the pages flipped open and it said, chapter 677. And you saw this picture of a man standing on the edge of a cliff. And, uh, and he's sort of contemplating to himself and you're kind of wondering, oh, what is he, what's he doing here? And he says, I knew I had a choice. I could either take a step forward off the cliff and hope that as I was falling, I could somehow take off my shirt or pants and fashion them into a makeshift parachute to at least slow my fall. So already, he's, Jack Handy's got me going here. And, uh, and then the page turns, and you see the man from a different angle, and you see that this cocktail party is going on about 15 feet behind him, um, just 15 feet away from the cliff. And the guy says, or I could go back into the party and try to tell the joke again but get it right this time. <laughs> right? I mean, like, I remember the first time I saw that segment, I was cracking up because it really taps into this really specific human experience of shame, right? We all know what it's like to blow a joke, 
right? And it's like the worst. You just want to crawl into a rock. Or maybe you want to jump off the cliff and uh, use your pants as a parachute. I don't know. Uh, If it makes you feel any better, my guess is that I've probably had that experience more than most of you. And when you mess up a joke, it usually goes wrong because you get the story wrong in some way, right? And so the punchline doesn't work like it's supposed to. And usually, if you try to tell it again and get it right this time, it doesn't usually work, right? Uh, It's a very unforgiving thing, joke telling. Well, um, as I mentioned, today we're going to be continuing in the book of Jonah. And up until this point, Jonah has really gotten the story shamefully wrong. But thankfully, as VeggieTales put it, our God is the God of second chances. And the Lord gives Jonah a chance to hit the reset button, to start the story over again, and to get it right this time. And when I say that Jonah gets to start the story over again, I mean quite literally. I mean, the book of Jonah is really split into two distinct halves. And the events in the second half parallel those in the first half. So here in chapter 3, we get the beginning, really, of the second half. If you could please grab a Bible and turn to Jonah, I'll show you what I mean. So really, there are, there are three actions in the first half of the book that find an exact parallel in the second half of the book. So chapter 1 begins with God's call and Jonah's disobedience, whereas chapter 3 begins with God's call and Jonah's obedience. And if you read the first three verses of each, the language is almost exactly the same. There's just a lot of similar language going on there. But the parallels don't stop there. There's also a parallel between the pagan sailors in chapter 1, and the Ninevites here in chapter 3. And they're both sort of um, surprisingly receptive to the Lord. So Jonah's resisting the Lord throughout the book, but these pagans, for some reason, they're just ready to hear the truth of God. And then third, there's this parallel between the prayer of gratitude that Jonah issues in chapter 2 and the angry prayer that he gives at the beginning of chapter 4 when he's mad that God had mercy on the Ninevites. So in the two halves of the story, we have Jonah's disobedience, Jonah's obedience, the receptivity of the sailors, the receptivity of the Ninevites, Jonah's prayer of gratitude, Jonah's prayer of anger. You guys see what's going on there? It's all kind of leading up to a crescendo, so John's going to have to just do something amazing next week. Um, He will. (laughs) He's a gifted man. Um, So, uh, But in, in order for the story to continue, uh, Jonah had to be recommissioned to do what he was already supposed to do, right? The steps that he does in the second half are already what he's supposed to have done. He had to revisit the story and get it right this time. So repentance means a second chance, or as I prayed earlier, sometimes a 77th chance. Secondly, repentance means trying to make things right. If it's within our power to make amends for what we've done wrong, and sometimes it isn't, or sometimes too much time has elapsed and it would be really (laughs) awkward to try to revisit that, but if it's within our power, we make every effort to do so. Have you ever been in that situation when it seems like the only way to move forward is to first go back and make something right? I think in many ways our country is still trying to do that in race relations. 
right? We're trying to go back and sort of make amends. We're trying to do something about the dehumanizing slave trade, about the forced breakup of families, about Jim Crow laws. And if the current events have told us anything, there's still a lot of people in this country that do not fully humanize African Americans, right? That stream is still going on. We're still having to revisit that. We're still having to pick up the pieces of what went wrong. But this is not just a corporate thing. It also has individual implications. There's individual obligations that are incumbent on those who are converted to Christ. In 1952, Kansas newspapers told the story of a man named uh, Al Johnson who had recently come to faith in Jesus. And uh, what made this story especially interesting was not his conversion necessarily, but the fact that as a result of his new life in Christ, he decided to make a public confession of a bank robbery he had participated in when he was 19 years old. And he made this confession from a church pulpit with news cameras looking on. And uh, now because the statute of limitations had run out, Johnson could no longer be prosecuted for the offense, but he still believed his relationship with Christ demanded a confession. And he even voluntarily repaid his share of the stolen money. So he went back and made amends. Brothers and sisters, I want us to know this morning that conversion to Christ doesn't just mean faith. It also means repentance. If we proclaim Jesus as Lord, if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, we're supposed to live like we believe that he is Lord. So people who abused alcohol before conversion should do so no more. It might be a long process, but the time to get started is today. Fathers who neglected their children before conversion should do so no more. If you cheated someone and you're able to pay them back, just as Zacchaeus does in Luke chapter 9, you should do it. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this household. One time I asked a longtime youth minister, why does it seem like so many Christian parents are clueless about the kinds of things that their children are involved in? And I was asking particular particularly about premarital sexual activity. And his answer surprised me. He said um, he thinks it's because many of these parents, even though they might attend church, have never actually repented of the things that they did before they got married. Right? They've never actually confessed those things. They've never actually brought them into the light. And therefore, they're really afraid to look at what's going on, going on with their kids. So they're sort of in denial. This is the beginning of the pattern of generational sin. And brothers and sisters, if this is you, there's no time like today to confess and repent and bring these things into the light. I still remember when I began to follow Jesus more seriously in college, and I went back actually to apologize to a girl that I dated in high school for ways that I had treated her a couple of years earlier. And I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily commend this after, you know, 16 years after the fact, but at the time I knew it would still be meaningful to her. And that repentance required me to try to make things right. Next, we turn um, to the part in Jonah where he preaches the gospel to the great city of Nineveh. Let's look at how the Ninevites respond to God's word. What does repentance look like? The conversion of Nineveh was one of the most massive and unexpected revivals in the history of the world, right? 
as Sarah noted a couple of months back, it, it would have been kind of like the modern equivalent of like a widespread, widespread repentance amongst radical Muslims in Iran or something like that. You know, um, it, it, it would have been just completely unexpected. And it's interesting that the message that Jonah delivered was so, which was just so simple, and his heart wasn't even really into it, right? And so God still moved in a massive way. And I think this should be an encouragement to any of us who are reluctant evangelists, that God can use us even when we're flawed. So picking back up on this topic of repentance, it says in the middle of chapter 3, verse 4, that Jonah called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for overthrown, it could also be translated overturn. And actually, the most common translation of that word is just simply turn. So this verse could be translated prophetically in a way. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall turn. So either way, the, the, the word turn, this concept of turning, is a very important idea in repentance. That's point number three, that repentance involves turning. To repent isn't just a changing of your mind. It's a change in direction. It's a change in whole life orientation, a turning from the way of death to the way of life. But of course, this does involve your mind and what you believe too. Notice that in verse 5 it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God, right? They believed God. Like Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're called to repent and believe the good news. Their faith actually, interestingly, came before repentance. And I, and I really think faith is primary for obvious reasons. Why would someone repent unless they believe that God is right and they're wrong? Right? Unless they trust his word to set the standard of truth rather than their own imaginings, you know, or their own experiences. On the necessary connection between faith and repentance, Tim Keller says this. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we see that saving faith and repentance are inseparable and that true repentance includes grief and sorrow over our sin. Repentance include, include, includes zeal, indignation, and longing. Repentance is a deep experience that profoundly affects the mind, will, and emotions. Repentance changes the heart. It will never be enough to ask a person if they've learned the faith, if they've been baptized, or if they've joined the church. If she, he or she has not repented, it is all to no avail. Those are sober words from a preacher of grace. So the people of Nineveh believed God, that he was right and that they had done wrong and therefore they needed to repent. Verse 5 continues, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So what we have here in verse 5 is sort of um, like a con condensed synopsis of what follows in verses 6 through 9. It's, it's sort of the journalistic heading. And as we read on in verse 6, we find that the word reached the king of Nineveh himself, and he repented. That was one of the amazing things about the revival in Nineveh. It led to a wide-scale wide corporate repentance. That, that, that's what was needed from the king on down to the peasant. Verse 5 says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And even their herds and flocks participated, right? 
even their cows and sheep repented. Isn't that, isn't that really a funny detail from the story? <laughs> verse 7 tells us that their animals were involved in fasting. In verse 8, we learn that their animals put on mournful underwear. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's hilarious. So perhaps all of this is just actually meant to point to the fact that, they, that the Ninevites didn't necessarily have their theology right. In chapter 4, God says to the Ninevites, do you know, uh, excuse me, in chapter 4, God says the Ninevites do not know their right hand from their left. See, but they're still zealous about getting their lives straight. See, sometimes when you repent, you do weird, unnecessary things, you know what I mean? Like some of you, when you like became Christians, you threw away like CDs or records that you're like, dang, man, I didn't need to throw that one away. <laughs> You know, and some of what you did was probably very necessary, and maybe some of it was the spiritual equivalent of dressing up your cattle in sackcloths. But either way, I kind of hope you've done silly things, because that means that you had zeal and you were taking the, the idea of repentance seriously. It's the people who can't relate to that impulse at all that I'm most worried about. Anyways, let's look a little closer at verses 7 and 8. So we find here four things the Ninevites did that characterized their repentance. So first, they fasted from food and drink. Second, they put on sackcloths. That was a traditional way of expressing grief in the ancient Near East. It says they called out mightily to God. In other words, they prayed as if their lives depended on it. And this is the most important truth of all. Number four, they turned from their sinful behavior. Verse 8 says, let everyone turn. Again, the word turn is crucial to our understanding of repentance. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence that is in his hands. It's not repentance until we've turned, turned back to the Lord. Clearly, to repent means to turn. I want to close this morning by... Um, taking some time to talk about the Lord. Um, we said that he's the God of second chances, even 77th chances, but um, much of my talk since then has been mostly human-centered in a way, and I don't want to give the wrong impression. Because without God's prevenient grace, it's impossible to repent. That's not just the teaching of like radical Calvinists. The, the Roman Catholic Church believes that. God provides grace, and we respond to that as human beings. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about the Lord's heart, because the New Testament says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And that makes me think about my mom, you know. Um, she was so kind, and she loved everybody in the household so much. So if she ever wanted you to do something or if you ever disappointed her or whatever, like you just kind of, oh man, it just kind of crushed you because you were like, I know how much she's poured herself out for me, right? Her kindness would very easily move me to repentance. What we get here in Jonah is it's, it's a partial picture because this is not yet the new covenant. Christ has not yet died for our sins and the gift of the spirit has not yet been poured out, poured out upon his people. However, even here we see hints of the gospel in the very heart and character of God. 
And I want to point out two things. First, we see God's heart and his desire to forgive the city of Nineveh. Right? He may have told Jonah to call out against them, but really, he was for them. Was he not? God desires that none should perish, that all should come to a knowledge of him. As Sarah pointed out during our Old Testament nights this summer, God's purpose in sending his prophets was that people might repent and have life. That's the purpose of the 40-day time span, to give them a chance to turn. And when they did, verse 10 says, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. One of my favorite verses in scripture um, comes from Ezekiel 33. And God says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they turn from their evil ways and repent. And then he pleads with Israel. He says, turn, turn. Why do you die, O house of Israel? That's the Lord's heart. Jonah knew all this about God that he's a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, to quote him from chapter 4. And Jonah didn't like it. But the Ninevites didn't really know what would happen. They say in verse 9, who knows? God may turn from his fierce anger, but then again they thought maybe, maybe not. Right? They had no sense of entitlement in this exchange. It actually harkens back to the way that the captain asked, the captain of the ship asked, uh, acted in chapter one. He was like, I don't know, maybe the Lord will do something if you call out to him. And that's my second point, that grace is supposed to remain amazing grace. Sometimes we treat God as like a forgiveness machine and it's his job description you know, to forgive us. And if he doesn't behave himself, we're going to sort of like fire him from being our God. You know, we're going to be like, I don't know, like, I don't know about this stuff like judgment and, uh, and disaster. We don't like those, so I don't know if I'm going to believe in you anymore. Right? So we posture ourselves as if we're God's judges and the Almighty has to answer to us. This is humanism at its worst and it's blasphemous nonsense. God is not in the hot seat. We are. We aren't the standard of justice. He is. And our only hope is not that he's obligated to forgive us. Our only hope is that he's the kind of God who would work out a way to forgive a bunch of rebels like us. Repentance is not the good news. God's heart is. It's out of the overflow of God's heart that the saving deeds of the gospel would come. For God so loved the world. Right? That's God's heart. That's God's heart on display. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oswald Chambers puts it like this. It's not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. Is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I'm put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died. When I turn to God and my belief accepts what God reveals, instantly the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me 
into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because anything I have done, but because what Jesus has done. The salvation of God does not stand on human logic. It stands on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creatures by the marvelous work of God in Christ Jesus, which is prior to all experience. So I ask you this morning, is there something that you need to repent of? Has the Spirit been stirring in your hearts this morning, calling you to repentance? Maybe you've even confessed it, but you've never purposed in your heart to not do it again. You've never taken the practical steps that show that you're serious about not doing again. And I charge you by the kindness of the Lord to drop whatever's in your hands so that you can receive the free gift of the gospel of Jesus. He is our hope. As Jonah himself has said, salvation belongs to the Lord and mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen.